This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Ahir Shah. Rents in the UK are at their highest rate on record. In areas such as Manchester, average asking prices for privately rented housing are up over 20% year on year, and the problem is nationwide, with rents up over 15% in London and 18% in Cardiff. Four in 10 under 30s now spend more than 30% of their pay on rent. Recent years have been full of acknowledgements from government that there is a housing crisis. There have, however, been a dearth of solutions. Joining me to discuss this is Pete Apps, Deputy Editor of Inside Housing and author of the forthcoming book, Show Me the Bodies, about the Grenfell Tower disaster. Pete, welcome to The Bunker. Hello, nice to be here. Pete, while the private rental market has been growing more unaffordable for a while, it seems like there's been a particularly massive shift in recent months. Friends who've moved recently have been telling me about having to make multiple offers above asking price or having to sign extremely unfavorable contracts. What's going on that's changed recently? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stories like that. I think what we're seeing is a fairly classic case of a mismatch between supply and demand in the market. There are fewer houses available for private rent than there were at the start of the pandemic is is the, the fundamental issue here. And that means that there are more people who want to rent each house. And that means that the, the landlords who are letting them can use that competition for demand to push the prices up. The question, I suppose, is why are there more houses to let than there were at the start of the pandemic. And that's where it gets a little bit more complicated because I think that there's a variety of factors at play. I think that some landlords, have the, the, the government has arguably belatedly moved to bring some new regulations into the private rented sector and, and some new taxes on landlord profits. Unfortunately, it did that at the same time as it, it, it introduced a stamp duty cut, which made it quite advantageous to sell your property. So a lot of landlords sort of faced faced rising costs on the, 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 the rental business that they operate and had the carrot of making a, a quick buck by selling the home and so so cashed in. And that took a lot of properties out of the market. I think that there's also been, I don't have good stats on this, but sort of certainly a- anecdotal that people who have shared flats throughout lockdown, that wasn't always a great experience for people. And so people have 
tried to find properties of their own as opposed to living with four or five friends. And that obviously means where you had four households in one house, you need four houses to house the same number of people. So there's an element of kind of changing changing demands and behaviours among renters. I think also the typical way for people to move out of being a private renter is to buy a home. And as prices rise, which they have done quite sharply since the end of the pandemic and interest rates go up, which has also happened, people are, are more likely to delay that decision to buy. And so you've got people staying in the private rented sector for longer. You've got people moving out of joint houses to find their own one. And you've also got landlords leaving the market at quite a rapid rate. And so all of that together is a bit of a kind of supply demand perfect storm, really. Yeah, just on the statistics to do with it, uh, I read that in July, Rightmove had said that the stock of available rental properties uh, for them was down 26% year on year, while demand was up 6%. And that does feel like a really huge mismatch. Yeah, I, I totally. And I mean, it, it, the, you mentioned in your, your intro, the, the anecdotes that you know, I'm sure we've all been hearing from friends and seeing on social media about there being hundreds of people going to every property viewing. And then the, the, the impact that that has with letting agents asking people to sort of put down deposits just to get a viewing or, you know, I, th- I think you're sort of familiar with the idea of people being asked to sort of overbid when they're buying a house. But that hasn't been something that's happened in the rental market, but that is happening now and that people are sort of letting agents will say, oh, this is on the market for, for, for £1,200 a month, but we're going to give it to the highest bidder. And so people were having <laughs> to enter bids to rent a property, which is extraordinary. I think I think the other thing that's, that's that's really important to bear in mind about this is it's happening at the same time as house prices are rising, and that means that okay, we all know that in certain areas of London it was always virtually impossible for people to to save up a deposit and buy their own home. That that isn't always the case in other parts of the country. So people might have been hoping to okay, well, rentings become too expensive. I'll, I'll I'll try and cobble some money together, get a deposit, and buy, but. With house prices shooting up, that puts it out of reach of so many more people. So they're really trapped. I mean, they, they have no no option other than to rent and the rent is becoming unaffordable. Um, and that that is, a, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a real sort of growing political issue that, that, that needs to be addressed before it turns into a crisis, I think. And as Sky's Ed Conway has noted recently, uh, year on year to July 2022, the average UK home gained £39,000 in value, whereas the average UK person was paid £32,000 in the year on year to July, and that's including bonuses. Pete, the London Mayor Sadiq Khan has called for a two-year rent freeze for private renters in London, and the Scottish Government has announced a rent freeze and eviction ban for private and social renters over the winter. Do you welcome this sort of action, and do you think that that's the sort of thing that we should be looking at rolling out nationwide? I think... There certainly needs to be some control of rent rises. I mean, the, the the fear with rent caps is always that it's going to drive landlords out of the market. But equally, an uncontrolled market will place tenants under unsustainable pressure when supply and demand are mismatched in the way that they are now. I think that it, it, they would need to tread, especially in London, where so many people rely on the existence of a large private rental market for their housing, they would they would need to tiptoe carefully and think about what the implications would be about landlords leaving the sector and all of that sort of thing. I think in London, perhaps a cap on rent raises would be a, a good start and then reforming the sector to a position where you could control rents sensibly in a way that allowed landlords to, 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 to stay in the sector, but also didn't see tenants hit with these extraordinary rises. And I think I think also some regulation around 
some of the things that we've talked about, about people being asked for incredible amounts of money just to get a viewing and, and, and having to bid and all of this sort of stuff. I think that area of the sector really does need to be brought under control because it's a little bit of a wild west at the moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. On the regulatory front, uh, the UK government is currently trumpeting its renters' reform bill. Could you talk us through what that bill entails and what it's changed? So the renters' reform bill, I think the aim is to, to, to give more rights to private renters. There's a very long-standing commitment, which goes right back to Theresa May's time as Prime Minister, to take away uh, Section 21 evictions, which is the landlord's power to evict a tenant at the end of a tenancy without giving a reason other than they just don't want them to be there anymore. So that will give people a bit more security of tenure. There, there's talk in the recent white paper that they're going to introduce what's known as a decent home standard, which is something that, that applies in social housing, but not in private housing, which is, is essentially a set of minimum standards for, for the quality of the property and an obligation in law for the landlord to meet those. I mean, these changes are, are things that are incredibly important and necessary. I think they reflect the fact that the private rented sector is no longer a sort of fringe part of the market that's that's an option for students and young graduates and hasn't been like that for a long time. It's, 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 it's how a large part of the population house themselves and how they will continue to house themselves. They have no other option. And therefore, you have to give them some security. You have to give them a decent quality of accommodation and some legal protection. So I think it's very, very overdue, actually, this, this, this sort of reform. Nonetheless, if landlords are leaving the sector now because of, of increasing burdens of, you know, the duties they have to fulfil, a lot of landlords are sort of, you know, some of them are accidental landlords because they've inherited a property. Some are, you know, just small time investors, really, who don't have much professional housing management knowledge. I think the government needs to ensure that if landlords want to stay in the sector, that they are helped to meet the duties that this act will impose. And if they want to leave the sector, that we are still providing rented homes for people who can't afford to buy. Because at the moment, we really just leave that to the market. And if the market isn't providing it, then the state needs to, because otherwise you'll see people become homeless. You touched briefly in your last answer about the way that the sort of cohort of people who are engaged in private renting has changed over recent time, as you said, like, not just something that is largely dominated by the young. 
Astute, could you talk a bit more about how this has shifted in recent years? Because I, I, for example, think like I'm, I'm a private renter in my early 30s. And I often think that if you just put the sort of my on paper description into someone who was born 20 years earlier than I was, I probably wouldn't be at this stage of my life. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I'll have to go back slightly more than I'll take your 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 um, use of the phrase recent years quite broadly. I guess you have to kind of, I think towards the end of the 1980s and in the 1990s, private renting was really something that people did at university mostly and maybe for a short period of time after graduating. It became a lot easier to 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 get a second mortgage really in in that period of time interest rates were going down and restrictions on on bank lending were being taken away and so i think to quote you from a previous um question that that, that growth in house prices that you see that sort of outstrips actual human earnings incentivized a lot of people to go and buy second and third homes and then and then put them out to rent and so that started the growth of the sector really and and at the same time, we were selling off social housing and reducing the amount of new social housing that we were building. And so people were coming into the private rented sector from two ends, really, both people who couldn't afford, who might have bought otherwise, but, but could no longer afford to because they were competing with people seeking their second or third home. And from the other side of people who might have qualified for social housing because they were on lower incomes, but there wasn't the social housing available. So the, the private rented sector sort of started to swell through both of those routes. Um, I think what's happened in the, the, the 20 years since, and especially in the last decade, is both of those trends have accelerated. So the, the provision of social housing has been choked off even more than it was, and the sell-off of social housing has been accelerated. So there are more and more and more people who are coming into the private rented sector, not like a sort of graduate in their 30s like, like yourself, but but um, as, as an option of housing of last resort. Um, and then there's also... The, the 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 ever growing ratcheting up of house prices and deposit demands and the, the the restrictions on mortgage lending that that came in after the financial crisis, which have made it much harder for somebody like you or me to buy a property outright. And so we found ourselves, while we could probably afford the cost of servicing a mortgage every month, and that's mm. by definition as a private renter, that is what you're doing, plus your landlord's profit margin. We're unable to meet the bank's terms for lending because you might not have the necessary income level to to to, to take the, the 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 loan that that you would need, or you simply can't save the money for a deposit because you know we all know how how high house prices are, and um, it it can be difficult to get into the market with anything less than ten percent. And so, because of that, you have only really got one option left, and that's the private rented sector. And so, it's grown and grown and grown because. Both of those areas, the reduction in social housing and the, the, the growth in house prices, have really been policy, really. I mean, government policy has actively encouraged both of those trends to continue and accelerate. And, you know, I think it, it would have been obvious and to see that the, the result of that was going to be more and more people in private rented housing. And we're only now really trying, sort of trying to catch up with the implications of that and trying to, to, to make that housing more um, suitable for families to live in, for example. But at the same time, the the, the market is 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 very unregulated and and very reactive to political changes. And so you see 
consequences like this flowing through where suddenly there's a there's a demand supply is choked off and demand's going up and then prices shoot out of control so i think really sort of sorry to 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 give you a slightly rambling answer to your question but it's a consequence of of the broader failings of housing policy which are at the heart of of many of the questions i'm asked about why a certain the latest housing market crisis has come around but it always strikes me that whenever you watch whoever the leaders are of Labour and Tories going at one another, it's always like, you haven't built any social housing. Well, you didn't build any social housing. And it's just that same conversation taking place seemingly every year without anyone being like, oh, should we actually build some social housing? Then that might be a thing that we could uh, do to alleviate the situation. It feels painfully obvious that the only real way this country is going to end up dealing with its myriad housing crises in the medium and long term is actually to build some fucking houses. But it's felt that way for a very long time now. What will it actually take to get this country building? Are there any changes in the pipeline or anything that you feel might change this sort of stasis that I feel that we've been living in for quite a long time? I mean, I think I think that just sort of in response to, to, to that question, a crisis like the one we're seeing at the moment wouldn't be immediately solved just by a quantum of building. You also need to think about are the houses that are being built going in the right places where this this mismatch between supply and demand are because, you know, building houses in Doncaster isn't going to solve a, 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 a supply and demand issue in London or Manchester. You've also got to think about are they hitting the market that that where this crisis is and the reasons we've discussed sometimes sale, homes that are built for sale are not available to people who, who are trying to rent. And so it is a bit more complicated than simply raising the, the quantum level of, of house building and hoping that our problems will disappear. We need to, to think about building houses if that's what we're going to do for people who are in need and where those people are. And and that I mean it gets very, very you get there's it's very difficult and there's an awful lot of trade-offs. I think in terms of short-term solutions to the problem that we're talking about today, I think that there's that the government could be could possibly be looking at additional means of controlling rent rises. I'm very interested to see how things play out in Scotland. And I also wonder if if landlords, private rented landlords are leaving the sector and putting their properties up on the market to buy why perhaps we're not moving as a country as in via the government to to buy some of those houses from them and then rent them out as either private or social rented homes which are owned by the state i think that that will you know you're you're gaining an asset and you're providing actually something for the people that need housing but the, the broader question you asked about how we get more homes built i think we did see we saw we saw steady increases in house building from the sort of bottom of the recession in the early 2010s that's now been choked off a, a, a bit by the pandemic by brexit by the, the the lack of labor that's um resulted from both of those and the soaring um levels of inflation hit the the construction sector pretty hard in terms of the price of bricks and the price of timber and the price of new boilers and pretty much everything that goes into building a house and i think that is you know part of the lesson really there is that if you're if you're waiting for free market solutions to to these problems you, you you're at the mercy of market trends and what the housing market has needed for a long time is recognition that it, it, it's it's 
broken and not delivering for people who aren't already served by it and therefore interventions and corrections to to address those needs but i think i think one of the first things is an honest conversation about when we say there's a housing crisis well who, who is there a housing crisis for because it's not for everyone and who whose housing crisis is the one that policy should move to address and I think once you start kind of actually unpicking those questions, you sort of move towards more sensible solutions. When you talked about the idea of the state buying back properties from private landlords, I immediately thought of the fact that right to buy ended up transferring a very large quantity of previously socially owned properties over the course of the last few decades into the hands of private landlords in in the contem- in contemporary britain and it may well be that if that were the policy that the state pursued it would be a case of buying back sort of hyperinflated things that were sold under right to buy a little while ago so i wondered as someone who works in housing what you think of right to buy with the benefit of hindsight now yeah, I mean, well, uh, the, the the sort of hypothetical example you gave there isn't isn't just a theory that that happens and and is happening. Uh, councils do buy back their right to buy homes sometimes only a few years after they've sold them, and it is effectively then not even a transfer of property, and it's just a cash transfer from the state to an individual, which is an extraordinary use of government money uh, or our money. I, I think that the the right to buy is it has not only reduced. The, the number of social ha- homes that we have because of the simple fact of them being sold to, to the first to the, the, the tenant who lived there and then often again and again and eventually often winding their way up into the private rented sector. It's also reduced, it hugely reduced both the appetite and the ability of local authorities to build new housing because they, they, they knew that new homes that they built would be sold off. I mean, I think a couple of years ago, there was sort of a very exciting news story about a street of social housing winning the sterling prize for architecture in Norwich and I think a couple of weeks ago one of those homes went under the right to buy and that that is why would local authorities invest if they're going to lose those properties at discount in a couple of years time so it's it's had this this enormous impact on what used to be the primary way that people who couldn't afford housing had their housing needs met in this country Obviously, the, the other side to that is it, it's made a lot of people homeowners and it's, it's allowed a lot of people to realise their, their sort of aspirations and dreams. And it's, it's, it's sort of easy for me to say as somebody who, who, who isn't a social housing tenant that, that those people shouldn't have the right to, to buy their own home. But I think you have to recognise the damage that that policy has done. And in the end, in the final balance, while some people have benefited from it the number of people that it has harmed because they don't they no longer have access to a social home far and away outweighs the the number of people who have benefited by becoming homeowners and the level of harm that's inflicted on the people who are now stuck in temporary accommodation or unsuitable private rented sector is higher than i think the gain that's been received by transferring someone who was fundamentally actually already securely housed into a property owner so I, I think that, you know, I, I don't, the Conservative government is, is, will always be fairly obsessed with right to buy because it was an enormous game changer in their appeal as a party to, to, to people from lower income backgrounds, particularly in parts of the country where right to buy was very popular. And I think they're always trying to, to, to replicate that success. 
But I think if you if you make any sort of sensible analysis of where we are as a country in terms of housing and what we need, then the right to buy can't be part of any sensible housing policy mix. And Pete, finally, in the short term, given the sort of pressures that everyone's got on their finances at the moment, is there anything that you would say to those who might be listening who are in the private rented sector in terms of rights that they may have but not know that they have or things that they should know? That's a very good question. I think what I would say is that whenever your landlord tries to do, and I, I, you know, I know this is kind of obvious because you introduced me as a journalist, but I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a housing advisor, but rental rights are imposed by law. They're not a matter for a private contract between you and your landlord. And so if your landlord has written into the contract that they can do X or Y, or they can raise the rent, or they can evict you under whatever things that they've put into their piece of paper, it may well be that the law supersedes that because they're implied statutory terms, which the landlord is not allowed to contract out of. And so I think if you are finding yourself in a position where your landlord is doing something that that certainly doesn't feel right, then you should reach out to organisations like Shelter and like Citizens Advice Bureau and, you know, housing law centres around the country and possibly even housing solicitors, some of whom are are able to act on a no-win, no-fee basis and recoup money from from the landlord in order to cover their costs. So I I think that would be my my major piece of advice is that always question what your landlord tells you the law is and and inform yourself because it might be more complicated than the, the, the black and white paper of your tenancy agreement. Pete, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us on The Bunker. You're welcome. Listeners, thank you for joining us on The Bunker Daily. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Do follow us on your favourite podcast app and you can get every edition of The Bunker early plus merchandise and more when you support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ahir Shah. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.